Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Lee Bell. Lee is a lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University, where he's currently pursuing his PhD in overreaching in strength sports. He's also a co-founder of TRA Performance Education, together with Dr. Paul Rimmer. And TRA organizes seminars and educational events for coaches and trainers. On top of all that, Lee is also a very accomplished writer who regularly publishes with many high-profile fitness websites. Today, Lee talks about his research into overreaching and overtraining, two concepts that I feel are quite poorly understood in the world of fitness. What do they mean? How can they be identified? How do they affect performance, mood, and health? These are all things that Lee talks about in the podcast today. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I certainly did. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for even more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people and it helps encourage other guests to come and speak which means I can get even more great content out to you. So, on to this conversation with Lee. Let's talk science. How are you doing? I'm all right, mate. That's successful in its own right, but you're managing to get on, uh, on an Instagram line. I tell you one thing, I've been, I've been having so many issues with people trying to get onto this, and just I've had so many unmitigated disasters in the past that you know it's nice when somebody can just hop on, it works, and everything is going well. Um, so yeah, thank you for thank you for making this more easy. <laughs> That's all right. So this is this is first time I've done an Instagram live. This is, this is good fun. Oh, this is your first. I'm your first. Yeah, and it's the first time that I've filmed anything in my office as well. Um, and I think I found the optimal spot for lighting. My face is nice and dark and sinister and shadowy. But I've also kind of got like some trap and delt stuff going off. So that's cool, man. I'm going to enjoy this. Sinister is a good word. Um, we, we do actually have quite a, a contrast going on here because I've got, I've got a million fluorescent lights hitting me right now. Um, and as, as you mentioned earlier on, and a lot of those fluorescent lights are actually like stage lights. I don't have any stage lights here. It just happens that our office really, really likes um, using as much light and energy as possible. Um, me. You've got a lighting ring over here. <laughs> it, it's portable. It's okay. It's, it's fine. Uh, you can get anything on Amazon these days. Um, so, Lee, uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Um, uh, I'm really, really excited to talk to you about, you know, your particular field of research. Um, but before we get into that, would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction? Just tell us who you are, how you kind of got into the fitness industry, and how you got to where you are right now, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, so I... It's almost completely by accident that I got involved in the fitness industry. I, I did a degree in sports studies. I wanted to do sports science, but um, my my college didn't think I would get the grades to do sports science, so I wasn't able to apply at university for that particular degree route. So I went to do generic sports studies, which is like a little bit of sport management, a bit of sports sociology, and then kind of like the lower-level physiology-type stuff. Um Sport management, sports sociology is really not my thing at all. So I kind of, during that course, naturally gravitated towards more of the scientific modules. Um, there's kind of, I guess, an irony in the sense that that is the degree that I teach on now at the same university. So you kind of, you know, I sit in this office and I, I enjoy that aspect of it. Um, but the accidental thing is that after I came out with my degree in sports studies, I wasn't entirely sure how I wanted to start to apply that science 
quite a lot of mechanistic stuff, but not really anywhere to go with it. Um, randomly, my nan applied for a job at a gym on my behalf. Um, so I kind of turned up at the, the gym, um, did the interview, and I was kind of like, this is what, how I think your programming might look, and this is how I think the gym layout might be. It was a gym that not actually opened at the time. I got the job. Um, I kind of, I think, over the months that followed, consequently just kind of developed a bit of a love for training people. Um, I went away, did all personal training courses, the what were loosely deemed strength and conditioning by then. So we're going back the best part of 15 years now where there wasn't really strength and conditioning as a term as you would know it. So it was more around personal training for kind of like athletic populations or whatever long terminology would be used by then. Um, I, I really enjoyed working with athletic populations, but for me it was more about, I was really interested in the underpinning stuff, not the actual application to the client. So like I, I'd be training someone in, in my mind and, and sometimes verbally I'm saying to them like, this is what's happening in terms of mitochondrial biogenesis and this is the reason why you're getting stronger and they're just like, Lee, like, am I losing weight? Like, am I getting... <laughs> what are my scores for today? And it was kind of like, you know, maybe this, this is not for me. I've developed this fascination but I just don't know how to apply it yet. So I went back and did my uh, MSc in Sport and Exercise Science. The reason why I chose that as a generic degree route was I'm really interested in biomechanics, really interested in SSC and physiology. I didn't want to commit to a particular route. Kind of wanted to do it all out of interest and take as much in as I could do. Um, started to work as a, a lecturer, little bits of ad hoc work at college and training for fitness providers. Um, I kind of escalated into me then delivering these courses within university settings, uh, working for global equipment suppliers. So every time they would install equipment in a gym i kind of got to that gym train all the staff on a little bit of technicalities of the machines and stuff like that long story short that was my route into then academia i, I have a real passion for standing up in front of people telling them all around the, the underpinning science i don't really like coaching people that much if i'm being completely honest but i enjoy coaching the coaches that coach the people so okay. it took me a very long time to get but I have the best job in the world now because I get to do exactly that. I get to steer the career trajectories of people who go out there and coach people and do what I enjoy doing the most, which is talking about mitochondria and strength and things like that. So that's that's kind of me, I guess. So so basically, if we go all the way back, it's you thanking your nan for applying for a job here. Yeah, mate, I had to borrow a pair of shoes as well. That's a bad thing. <laughs> TVs were black and white and... I, I remember my first job interview and I was wearing a suit that was at least two sizes too big for me. But, um, you know, that, that's how we start. The right passage, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, so that's where you are right now, okay? You're, you're lecturing in university. You're teaching people who are going to be working with individuals in the, let's say, the sports field, in the S&C fields. Um, you're very active um, when it comes to publishing papers and you recently published a paper um, with a colleague of yours Paul Rimmer that just got accepted um, and I was wondering if we could very very briefly just talk about that paper itself um, and what it's kind of what it's about overall and what, what it means to you yeah um, yeah I mean I've, I've already made the, the joke a few times on social media but you know like Paul Rimmer and Lee Bell I think it took us longer to decide which way the names would go around than to write the actual paper. So are we going Bell Rimmer? Are we going Rimmer Bell? Like that was an actual debate in Starbucks. And um, in the end, we decided to go Bell Rimmer, mostly because I had more input on the paper, as I'm sure Paul will agree, of course. Um, the, the reason, 
feel like already I'm going off on loads of different tangents, but this, this I'll, I'll come back around and this is useful. Um, my Because of the fact that I didn't go directly from undergrad, postgrad, and then into academia, and I've kind of gone through what are several different job roles, like I've worked in clinical practice, I've worked with elite athletes, I've done lots of different things, is for me, the, the research I provide has to be outcome-based. It's got to be practitioner-oriented. I have, I have this, again, real deep interest in the mechanistic stuff that underpins it, but for me, if the research has to be usable. It has to have some usability for coaches. And that's who I, who I want to help and work with. So we were looking at kind of some of this stuff that, you know, as much as I'm not a massive fan of the term anymore, like evidence-based practice, is what happens when the literature is used in the real world and where are some of the limitations in using that literature. So the paper was basically around the coach-athlete relationship and some of the things that are not measurable and are not based around the literature. So what happens in the real world of training people? And um, a few years back, maybe three years back or so, Paul and I did a talk at Body Power around um, training the female athlete. So at the time it was kind of um, riding that wave of popularity around like menstrual cycle training and the emerging literature around that area. And we did a talk and I got quite a lot of traction and people found it quite interesting. So it was really just a little bit more around that relationship that the male, uh, the male coach might have with the female athlete and the likelihood of them asking questions around things like menstrual cycle and how important that might be um, in practice. It was a paper that we actually wrote quite a while back and I know we were chatting before about this is that I can't remember a massive amount about the paper itself because literally you submit it, you, it goes into review, you move on to something else. And we, I even forgot it got published, if I'm being honest. And then Paul sent me the title. He's like, man, we've had this published. I was like, that's really cool. I was like, I can't really remember what it is, though. I was like, go back to the paper and read through it. I was like, all right, okay, that makes sense. So, yeah, it's just a little bit about like kind of like the usability of research. So taking the literature and what that means in practice. Do, do, do you find that there's quite a disconnect between, um, let's say, a lot of research that's getting published and its usability when it comes to how, let's say, a coach can apply the information from that research? Um, I think I'd be slightly biased in my answer in that I kind of look at, in order for me to move forward with my projects, I have to spend a lot of time immersed in that. Um, underpinning, you know, deep mechanical, mechanistic literature um, before I can then start to apply it using my own experience and then, you know, things that we have at the moment where kind of like taking this underpinning literature and then asking and quizzing the coaches that apply it and getting their interpretation on it and, you know, what, what are your interpretations of this literature? Where do you think some of the limitations are and how do you apply it in your practice? Um, so, Yes, I do, but I think the industry is moving forward exponentially in terms of this very outcome-based research. I think there's a, a big, strong attempt, whether that's led by, I think there has been a real big shift in academia. I think ac academics now are more practitioner academics or academic practitioners are actually going out there and doing the job as well, rather than just those kind of like, you know, SPSS people or very analytical people have never actually gone out there and done it in practice. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a big shift. There's a big change in the literature, which is kind of fun, you know. And if, I think if, if coaches find that easier to understand and apply, then that's beneficial. So I think that's a good move. No, no, absolutely. I completely agree with you. It's, it's nice to, to have people who are able to, you know, when they're writing a paper or when they're researching a topic, they can do it from the perspective of how useful is this going to be instead of I just need to find 
A or B or C or whatever. Just I need to find one answer. It's people thinking, you know, on, on a more global level, which is yeah, yeah I, it's good. Yeah, I think what I would add on that as well is that sometimes I think if you're if you're not an academic and you're trying to decipher knowledge from a paper, that in itself has inherent limitations and potential for extrapolating incorrect meaning or looking for limitations that are not necessarily there and, and maybe not understanding a little bit around the process of publication as well. So as an example, so I'm running the project at the moment. I have um, seven undergrads that are working as research assistants collecting the data for me. We're having a great time in piecing all this together because we're, we're writing an intervention that's never been done before um, rather than just kind of replicating another study. And that's taken us four months to get to a point of being ready to send it to ethics, let alone get an ethical approval. And I, I can't really talk too much about what the actual intervention is, but originally we wanted to do it on back squat. We had an informal discussion with ethics, and straight away they just went, you will kill people by doing it on back squat. Like, you were not allowed to do it. I'm like, all right, that's cool. Killing mm -hmm. people from, you know, apparently you can't kill people for the sake of science. Um, not in S&C anyway. So then we kind of went away, yeah, and we were like, well, we know we would get ethical approval on the leg extension. Why don't we do that? And it becomes a very mechanistic set of data. But then we were like, right, but the outcome measures are things like counter movement jump, isometric mid-thigh pull, the very knee and hip dominant, the leg extension's knee dominant only, what's the dynamic correspondence transferability going to be? So in the end, we were like, right, okay, let's just look at leg press. We're all happy with that. We're keeping our fingers crossed it will get to ethics, and then we can start to apply it or at least start to recruit people that are willing to have a go on it. And, you know, I was, I was talking about it in a group, I can't remember which group, it was quite a large group, and, you know, within five minutes, someone comes back just saying, well, the leg press is not very applicable, is it? And you just kind of like, like, please, mate, if you, if you can get something that you consider to be usable for your practice through ethics as well to make it safe and effective research, or honestly, good luck. Sometimes they have this kind of, it's this to and fro between what is going to be, good and safe science but then also what's usable for that person's specific interest you know that and also you know well you only recruit the 10 participants and you kind of like mm, yeah but based off statistical power analysis or based off the fact that we just couldn't find any more recruits like that's sufficient for this type of study um i, I kind of sometimes get on my soapbox a little bit about non-scientists picking holes in scientists works and sometimes there are holes that deserve to be picked and sometimes it's kind of like, you know, maybe know your place a little bit. Maybe just appreciate that there's a long process that bubbles along in the background. I, I, think, I think it's very, very easy for some people um, who haven't any kind of experience putting together uh, uh, an actual, let's say, a, a research protocol or having to deal with an ethics committee to pick holes in, in, in a research, in a piece of research and say, well, they should have done this, they should have done this, whatever. It's not that easy. And, and as somebody who's uh, recently had my own issues with getting something through ethics, um, I absolutely feel your pain. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it, like, congratulations on, like, you know, being able to, let's say, be flexible with your protocol um, and kind of do what you can do to get the, the research in. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, to, it's, just, it's just getting an intervention the, the intervention is obviously important, but this is something that's not been done before. So for us, it's just it's teasing some of the potential outcomes and measures and saying, is this worth investing more time and resources and, and money as well, if you know, if we were to able to get grants and stuff for it, 
to then look at it in more detail further down the line. So sometimes it's phase one of a five, six, ten phase approach. And, you know, sometimes it does have to be bent and molded to suit the needs of that particular research question before you can start to add on these layers of complexes and make it a little bit more usable. So, um, yeah, so as much as what I try to create and my plan over the, the next few years is to create a series of very outcome-based, practitioner-based studies, sometimes you have to kind of go backwards to jolt forwards. No, no, like, absolutely. And I think anybody who has done a, a PhD in, in some sort of a some sort of feel that requires an intervention with people or even, even with animals, you know, you go into it with a particular idea of what you want to do and what you think would be, you know, your ideal intervention. Um, and then the realities of ethics and finances and time and everything comes into it. And you just have to start cutting off certain things and kind of just making, you know, your best attempt at it. So it, it does definitely evolve over time. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm moving forward with my PhD relatively quickly. As far as I'm concerned, I'm well ahead of my schedule, but I have the absolute luxury of being surrounded by, like, really, really good, knowledgeable scientists. And you, you listen to these guys talk about the studies that they have in place and the decisions that they make and the statistical analyses that they apply. And sometimes you sit there and you're just like, I, I am in the wrong job, you know. And then other times you kind of go through it, you have this kind of period where you're just like, Actually, you know, maybe I'm not that bad. And then you go back to, I'm in the wrong job. Like, I need to send my CV off to Asda. Like, I just need to completely <laughs> get out of academia. Like, get a job on a till somewhere or something like that. And that's no detriment to people that work in Asda, but, like, it's far removed from sports science. So there's this, I think a PhD journey is something that's like this, or it certainly has been for me so far. Good days, bad days. Days where you're just in a fetal position, just crying. And then some days where you're just kind of like, that wasn't a bad week. That was all right. Good to know I'm not the only one that feels that way. Um, so I really want to get into your particular field of research. And I was just wondering if you could tell us um, what your, your field of research is right now, please. Yeah, sure. So my, my PhD and the kind of stuff that runs parallel to it is based around um, fatigue, I guess, really. So the kind of spectrum from acute fatigue all the way through to kind of chronic, um, you've ruined your career type fatigue. So kind of like the overtraining syndrome, rhabdomyolysis, kind of that stuff, really. Um, that's what I'm interested in. So if, if we're talking about like fatigue, some words that we hear a lot in, in that whole area of research are things like overreaching, overtraining. Um, and there are words that get, let's say, thrown around a lot in a lot of conversations um, uh, around, you know, like S&C, around endurance sports. I suppose the, the best way to start would be to kind of get a little bit of, or as much of a definition of those concepts as we can, and then we can kind of build a conversation around that. Yeah, sure. So imagine it like a timeline, right? So you um, you provide a stimulus of training. So my my specific research interest is in around fatigue as it relates to strength training i'm not really interested in endurance training if i'm being honest so there's there's a stimulus there's a resistance training session and there are um two things that happen one is there is a stimulus for the adaptation to occur that eventually hopefully leads to an increase in performance right or muscle mass depending, depending on the stimulus but there's also an increase in fatigue as well okay so right from the get-go those adaptations begin on a very you know cellular level from one session and there's a big increase in, in fatigue as well. 
So we provide that stimulus. And if we were to apply a progressive overload model, what we'd do is we'd apply the stimulus, we'd recover a little bit, we'd supercompensate, we'd apply the stimulus again, we'd recover, and hopefully over time we'd see that we can deal with more stimulus, the adaptations get larger and they accumulate, and then we can hopefully, we can realize, we can visualize those increasing performance over time. Okay? So that's like your stimulus-acute fatigue relationship. Um, an overreach, now this depends, and there's a couple of different definitions. The functional overreach and a non-functional overreach is that some for, so particularly for those like um, well-trained athletes, is that progressive model of stimulus recovery, stimulus recovery starts to nullify and starts to plateau, so the, the performance gain starts to become more stale. So we need to provide more of a stimulus, and we do that by either increasing the frequency of the stimulus, so they train more often, so that could be training more times a week, or if we have an athlete that's really well-trained, that could be training more times a day, so like an AM or a PM split, or whatever that might be, which then indirectly means that they increase weekly volume. Or we could increase intensity within each session, or we could combine all of them if we wanted to, and that's a different conversation in its own right. But because we're layering on more of a stimulus, we're also accumulating a lot more fatigue. All right. So a functional overreach would be when a coach would apply a very small period of time. So that could be a microcycle of maybe one to two weeks. If you look at kind of like the Zaskiosi literature, that's often referred to as an impact cycle, and um, where you hit them with a lot of volume for a short period of time, one to two weeks, you accumulate as a byproduct a lot of fatigue. So during that one to two weeks, you're beating your athlete up, their performance is getting worse and worse and worse. But once they get to the end of that cycle and you deload and you add recovery as they get this jolt in performance, what in the literature is referred to as a supercompensation, which whether that's the right term or not is, is in debate. And then they get this increase in performance. So the, the, the coaches essentially said, you know, for a week or two, you're going to train hard, you're going to feel beat up. But at the end of it, once you deload, you'll get this big, sharp, hopefully increase in performance. So that's called a functional overage because it has a functional outcome. So it's a little bit like a run-up, right? A non-functional overreach is when you over-egg a functional overreach. So, and this is where there's a lot of debate within the literature now is when does functional become non-functional? And non-functional is essentially if you apply this microcycle or you train hard for too long and then you start to recover because you're feeling too big or you can't maintain the amount of volume is it takes you then several or a couple of weeks to several weeks to recover. Right? That in itself is fine. The problem is is that because you're not training, the adaptation starts to decrease as well. So you then start to lose fitness. So by the time the two join, you haven't really accumulated enough of a stimulus over time and too much fatigue for there to be an increase in performance. So the outcome then would be either no change in performance or a decrease in performance. So you've tried to purposely apply too much training, but it's come to bite you in the ass and that you've had a negative outcome. So specifically, non-functional overreach would take a couple to several weeks to recover from. And I think that's quite important. If for whatever reason you said, well, I'll tell you what, like, I'm just going to buy the bullet, I'm going to continue training, and I know I'm feeling beat up, but I'm just going to keep layering on volume, layering on intensity, layering on frequency, then eventually the, there is the potential then to migrate into what's called overtraining syndrome. The difference between the two is not in the symptoms themselves. The symptoms that are manifested across both are the same but it's the time cost to recovery. Overtraining syndrome specifically has a time cost to recovery of several weeks to months with, and again, if you look at the literature, particularly in the endurance literature, sometimes it can be years. I think one of the longest ever recorded cases was something like 11 years, which, like, you've ruined that athlete's career. They're not coming back from that. Add on the fact that the reoccurrence rate, again, in the endurance literature, and 
come back to why I'm referring to the endurance literature shortly is there's like a 90, 91% reoccurrence rate. So once you've got someone that suffered from endurance, uh, sorry, overtraining syndrome, once they recover in that several weeks to months and you start to layer on training again, they're at a much higher risk of reoccurrence of overtraining syndrome. So that in itself has, there are issues there from the coach and how quickly they can apply a training stimulus. But from an athlete's perspective as well, there will always then be an inherent concern that they're going to train too hard and they're going to feel a little bit tired, but maybe in their mind it's not, I'm tired, it's I've got overtraining again, you know? So that, I think that is an issue in its own right, but it's very much linked across this spectrum from acute fatigue through to a functional overreach, non-functional overreach, and then overtraining syndrome. Does that make so, sense? Like, it, well, it, it does. So I, I've you, you've sent me stuff to, to research on this, so I should understand this at some level, but it's still a relatively difficult concept for me to get my head around. So I just want to kind of, I'm going to say back some of what you said to me just to kind of, to see if, if I'm getting it right. And then hopefully um, other people who've, who've heard as well are probably, you know, they're probably on the same track as me, fingers crossed. Um, so the idea is that we provide a stimulus through training and we recover from that as regular training. When we go into um, functional overreaching, we're, providing extra stimulus for a certain amount of time, like you said, two weeks, which beats somebody up. But it's enough for them to recover relatively quickly afterwards and then super compensate for that. That's our functional overreaching because it's it's being a benefit to somebody. It's, put, it's a training protocol that somebody can use to improve over time. Yeah. But if and that's... One, the, I'm sorry to interrupt. What I will add on that as well is there, there are a couple of things that could be purposeful. So in, in strength sports such as weightlifting and powerlifting, a good coach will possibly know when to apply a functional overreach, a purposeful overreach. But a functional overreach can also be applied by accident, purely by someone saying, you know what, I feel good, I'm recovering fast, I'm just going to hit it hard for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, like, yeah, I feel tired, they have a deload, they have a few days off, they come back after that deload, and they're like, I look bigger, I'm shifting the weights quicker, I'm stronger. So the functional thing can be personal, but it can also be accidental as well. Okay. Um, and then if we go into what you mentioned as being non-functional overreaching, that's just when somebody has gone too hard and they can't recover quickly enough and it takes a few weeks for them to get back to where they had been previously. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then if we go into... If we go another step further, we're talking about overtraining, which is where somebody has gone so far and, and trained so much with so much intensity or, or whatever that recovery takes an exceptionally long amount of time. And like, like you mentioned, months to potentially years in some cases. And that, that's something that I found really, really surprising that it can, it can actually last for that long. It can last years. Yeah. Um, what what becomes more difficult as well is that overtraining is a verb, it's a doing word. So the, the act of training harder than what you can recover, the vernacular the terminology could be I am overtraining, which is different to the overtraining syndrome, which is a multifactorial, multi-symptomatic um, disorder that has to be diagnosed by a medical professional. So in order for you by rights to say, I, I have overtraining syndrome, that needs to be diagnosed using a, a proper protocol tool which I don't think many people know about. Um, the, the, the thing that I was going to come back to as well was uh, the reason why I specifically want to look at overreaching and overtraining in strength sports is 
for a couple of reasons. One, I'm just more interested in the strength training research anyway. But secondly was, when I finished my MSc, um, which was in overtraining in, um, it was triathlon, it was ultra-endurance, it was a lot of triathletes, GB triathletes and such, is when I was piecing the literature review together and we'd gone through like the, um, we decided to do a systematic review that ran parallel to it, we went through all the PRISMA guidelines. So all the studies that were coming back, we were either, yes, you're included because you're endurance in terms of the modality in the population, or you're intermittent sports, invasion sports, quite a little bit on, on rugby, um, or your strength sports. So, you know, you're going through it and you're like endurance, 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 one for rugby, endurance, endurance, endurance. And I'm kind of like, where's all the strength training literature? Like, why is there nothing here? In the end, on the systematic review for the endurance training, we were like 200 plus studies that we included. And there was just hardly anything tangible in the strength literature. So kind of being an inquisitive scientist, I'm like, okay, great. Like, I could spend more time invested in the endurance stuff, but all I'm doing is throwing more water into a big swimming pool. Whereas here, this is an untapped resource. And, you know, when, when I've worked with athletes in the past high-level athletes, they've been strength athletes. So I'm like, right, there's a few reasons why I need to invest some time in this now. Um, took a lot longer than maybe what I should have done, but I was sort of like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm just going to do it for my PhD. So that's the reason why we're looking at the strength literature. Now, if you look at the diagnostic tools that are used for overtraining syndrome and you look at all of the symptoms Bizarrely, they're all extrapolated from endurance training, which is different training modality, different um, volumes and intensities, obviously, different types of adaptations you're trying to create in order to improve performance for that sport. For strength training, it's completely different, but yet we seem to be pulling a lot of the data and just surmising that this is what happens with strength athletes. In reality, it's just not the same at all. So that that was that was one thing that I really did want to mention because so from what I, I I've looked into this and it's very very little there did seem to be a huge amount of information coming from um, research in endurance sports and you know anybody will say like can can you extrapolate this to to strength sports and one one thing I wanted to ask is so if we talk about endurance sports because I, I know that's where the majority of research is if we talk about endurance sports what are the symptoms of overtraining or let's say non-functional um overreaching but what what does this look like when somebody is has kind of overtrained to that degree that their you know their their recovery is suffering yeah um good question and i'm, I'm glad that you kind of said like what what are some of the symptoms of overtraining and also <laughs> some of the symptoms of overtraining and overreaching because they are the same and this is the problem that we have is that the vast majority of those studies the diagnosis for overtraining or overreaching has to be done retrospectively, purely on that time cost to recovery. So it's like, right, what were your symptoms? You've got A, B, and C. Okay, great. What was your time cost to recovery? A couple of weeks. So you're like, okay, great. You, you were overreached. You were a little bit tired. You were overreached. Just chill out for a couple of weeks, deload, take some time off, come back, start again. You've then got overtraining syndrome, and it's like, okay, what were your symptoms? Ah, okay, A, B, and C again. What was your time cost to recovery? Five months. And you're like, okay, great. So retrospectively, we've been able to differentiate. You were overreached. However, you suffer from overtraining syndrome. You, there is very little there that you can be proactive and say you're at the risk of overtraining and or overreach, and you can't segregate one or the other. So as a coach, it becomes difficult because you have to make a decision on, can my athlete tolerate just a little bit more load accumulate a lot of fatigue but then they'll bounce back and super compensate after i choose to put a deload in there so we keep edging it and edging it and edging it or do we keep edging it and edging it 
but we've gone too far, but we don't know we've gone too far until we apply the deload and see how long it takes them to recover. So can you kind of see the issue? So, so being proactive and saying these are the types of symptoms and markers we look for is actually quite difficult. To answer the original question of what are some of the symptoms from the endurance literature, decreasing testosterone, increasing cortisol, um, so TC ratio changes, um, TE ratio changes, so there's a decrease in testosterone, increasing in stradiol, um, there are a, there's a big um, sustained transient increase in inflammatory markers, particularly like acute phase, once a C-reactive protein, tumor necrosis alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, um, some of the cytokines like interleukin 1 and 6 and some of those other things, um, tiredness, decrease in performance, reduced sleep quality, um, lack of motivation, lack of vigor, um, anxiety symptoms, symptoms of depression, generally not wanting to train and when that person trains is not training at their optimal level of performance which then has this cyclical effect of that's demotivating and such when you then take all of that and apply it to a strength athlete some of that then becomes invalid and less reliable so there are changes in the testosterone cortisol ratio for example but that's very acute and if you look at the studies in strength populations that can't be used as a reliable diagnostic tool it's essentially just a, a marker for that time and place. It changes very, very frequently throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the cycle. And the only things that we found in our reviews so far, and this is very early stage research, so we are just looking at a, a review level at the moment, is um, decrease in um, not strength, is in terms of maximal strength, but the ability to exert that strength at maximal velocity is basically explosive strength. So we found that with the tentative literature that's there and something worth exploring in, a, in greater depth is that athlete could probably maintain maximal strength, so 1RM, for example, training 1RM um, for longer, but we see this decrease in explosiveness, so essentially like being able to move a bar at fast velocity. So that seems to be something that's, that I am inquisitive about assessing. We've still got that lack of motivation. We've still got that kind of coach's intuition around the athlete doesn't feel right and we can just kind of tell that the way the bar's moving and the way the athlete's moving as well and the way the athlete looks is just not the same and we are i've been speaking to a lot of international level coaches over the last few months for a different study and kind of asking the questions around how do you address or how do you at least get the idea that the athlete might be overly fatigued and sometimes it's not oh their counter movement jump was decreased by a standard deviation or two or you know we, we didn't need to do a one rm test it can literally be they walk in the gym and it's like you don't look right today are you all right and the athlete's just like i'm feeling beat up you know and sometimes the coach is then kind of like let's just auto regulate let's just ease off a little bit or sometimes the coach is just like good because that's what i want because i want you moving into this functional overreach but stick with it because next week when you deload you're going to bounce back and you're going to feel like a million bucks because you bars going to be moving faster, you're going to be stronger, you're going to be bigger, and you're going to look and feel the part. So it's kind of a complex thing where there's lots of different moving parts. And if, I think if we can nail when we identify, and this does not exist, but when we identify the point when a functional overreach becomes a, a high risk of non-functional outcome, then that's going to be some pretty solid research. Um, and I, just like from listening to everything that you you've spoken to me about that doesn't strike me as something that's going to be easy to, to elucidate because what you're talking about is a, a syndrome of different um, conditions that people are suffering from. Like, so you're talking about like 
low mood. You're talking about um, changes in some biochemical markers. You're talking about decreases in performance. Um, and just like, again, from my, let's say, you know, from a perspective of somebody who is not in this field, it would be very, very easy, I think, for an athlete to just feel like, oh, I just don't feel great at the moment mm-hmm. and not think anything else about it. And unless they had a particularly, let's say, in tune or in-touch coach with them who was continuously kind of monitoring a lot of different factors about them, it's something that could go overlooked very, very easy. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And again, it's, so my approach to this research going forwards is it's triangulated between what does the existing literature say and suggest how is that applied by a coach so how does a coach take that literature and apply it in their own practice but then what does that mean and what are the consequences and insights from an athlete as well so it's this kind of like evidence-based triangulation approach so we looked at the literature so we we've got a review which is ready for publication and there's also been a review gone in sports med um, i think it was last month or maybe the month before, I think it was December, actually, 2019 one. So, yeah, it was December. We, we see no real evidence of overtraining syndrome ever occurring within strength training populations or in resistance training as the only modality. I think if you start to layer in concurrent training where there's an additional stimulus from endurance training, I guess, really murky. So we're looking at, we're kind of saying, okay, well, we've seen very, very little evidence of overtraining occurring. Therefore, it doesn't occur, right? That would be a very absolutist, very kind of, closed wall way of looking at things so then we're like okay let's talk to the athletes so i was involved in a an international cross-sectional study which is is still in review at the moment so again i don't want to kind of make too many um conclusions from the data but what, what essentially what we found was from a thousand people that responded we got 600 actual respondents i.e 400 we kind of had to get rid of because it was either incomplete questionnaires surveys or um, even though we'd ask people to just say, like, strength-based sports, some people were putting, like, marathon in, and you just kind of, like, no, that's got to go in the bin kind of thing. So we got these 600 respondents, and we started to look at how many of you feel that you have either overreached or overtrained. Now, what we didn't do is we didn't use those terms because they there's a lot of stigma attached to overtraining as a term. So how many of you have suffered from unexplained underperformance, for example? And 72% of people out of those 600 said, yes, I have. So we're like, that, that's quite high. That's a, a worrying amount of people. Okay, so the following question then is, how long did those symptoms last for? And the majority of people, it was one week to four weeks. So you've got their acute fatigue, stroke, tiredness, stroke, you know, pull your socks up and get on with it through the potential for overreaching, but nowhere near overtraining. Then we were like, okay, cool. How many of those people would have been potentially overtraining, and it was something like 4%. So again, you look at, we've got two points of this triangulation, Now we've got the literature saying we can't see any evidence. We've then got 4% of 600 people saying, I had symptoms of fatigue that lasted four weeks or more, actually, sorry, four months or more. So you've got two points there, and then the third point was, okay, well, let's talk to the coaches. And the coaches are kind of like, we don't know if overtraining has occurred per se, but we kind of don't care. What we want to identify is when is there excessive fatigue that's having a, more of a decremental effect on performance than what we would have anticipated. So you've got this triangulation approach. So we're kind of like, all right, well, my goalposts have changed then because originally my, my research question was, how do we identify overtraining? And now it's kind of like, well, do we need to? Why don't we identify when functional overreaching becomes non-functional overreaching? Because we catch it earlier. 
So my, my paradigm, my approach to my PhD and my research in general kind of is moving dynamically along that spectrum to kind of go, well, we wouldn't need to worry about this. We catch it early. I think what's interesting as well is that out of those 72% of people that said, I've suffered unexplained underperformance, is that over 90% of those people said that there was additional stresses from non-training related stresses themselves. So those being hectic work schedules, family commitments, um, like short-term transient illness, things like that. So then, okay, right, well, maybe it's the combination. This goes back to the original definition in um, the SSS overtraining statement was, it's not just about how hard you're training, it's about the summation of stresses and how you cope with the demands of those stresses. So you've then got two populations. You've got elite athletes who can tolerate more load because when they're not in the gym, they're on Xbox or they're at the cinema or they're going and buying trainers and clothes, they can tolerate more stress as opposed to general population that are trying to train like an athlete with that same amount of training load, but have then got to factor in the fact that they've fallen out with their missus, they hate their manager, they're up early every morning, they've got to drop the kids off at school, they've got a shit job, and then they're going to the gym and, gym and trying to train like a, a pro athlete. So maybe those are the ones that are at a higher risk of overtraining or at least excessive fatigue because it's that kind of immeasurable stuff that they need to bear in mind. That was yes, a um, answer, sorry. It, it, it was, uh, and we, we, you answered a, a few questions that I haven't even asked yet, but it's good. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually really, really glad that you got into um, some of those other stressors that can kind of play into um, into the whole, let's say, overtraining syndrome. Um, but before before I go on to those, one thing I wanted to ask is, I'm, I'm really glad that you, you, you mentioned how important it is to identify when that functional overreaching becomes non-functional overreaching. And it's kind of like a, a cutoff point to say, okay, after this point, we're doing more harm than good. This is where we need to pull back. Do you think that it's not particularly useful even to be looking at um, a kind of a proper con concise definition from for overtraining? Because it, and again, I'm speaking from somebody from, from outside the field, but I say it, it does seem to be a continuum, a continuum not of symptoms, but a continuum of time and time to recovery that kind of separates the, the two, like non-functional overreaching times, um, and uh, overtraining. So is it just, is it, it's not that, is it not that useful or is it still something that you think needs to be investigated? It's still something that needs to be investigated. I think eventually where this will go a couple of ways. I'll get the first ever strength and conditioning Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> Which is unlikely, but we can hold that hope, all right? <laughs> or it will become part of a broader education program. So going into clubs and gyms and kind of saying to the coaches, these are the things that you need to identify because the athletes that you're working with do not fall into the category of norms of the symptoms that you might expect to find. So if all you're doing is taking bloods and looking at testosterone cortisol or TE ratio, you're not going to find what you expect to find. Because there's no one uniform gold standard test in, in any overtraining literature, endurance, intermittent sports or strength training, it becomes very, very difficult. I think there needs to be more work done around the definitions, particularly of overreaching. The problem that you have is that even if you came up with a uniform definition, there is so much inter-individual variance in how people cope with the demands of training and non-training related stresses. So as an example, I might think I'm being a proactive coach. My athlete walks into the gym 
and says, Coach, I'm feeling pretty beat up. Um, I'm feeling pretty shit. I want a light session. And as a coach, I go, yeah, cool. That's that's fine. If that same athlete had come in and said, I'm feeling pretty beat up, and I'd have just gone, just go through your warm-up, move the bar a little bit, see how it feels, maybe get a little bit of some potentiation work done, some heavy sets or whatever, come back to me and see how you feel. Half those athletes might come back and go, yeah, I'm still feeling pretty beat up. Or they might go, I feel good. Like, I, I want to load up and I want to go heavy. So as a coach, then it's like, right, we can try and be proactive, but at what point do we make the decision to go lighter or go heavier? Because pre-warm-up, post-warm-up, we might get different results. Am I going to be inhibiting my athlete's performance or the potential for adaptation by wrapping them up in cotton wool and kind of going, oh, no, 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 like you yawned when you walked through the door, therefore you're on a light session. And they were just kind of like, no, I just had my mouth open a little bit. I wasn't yawning. He kind of like, that, you need that athlete interaction. Um, there just is nothing that exists out there at the moment that we can say define as a defining point that person is non-functionally overreached or they are functionally overreached, it's still based around that time course to recover it. And that's, that's what I would want to change. That's where the Nobel Prize will come in. <laughs> uh, fingers crossed for that Nobel Prize. It, 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 just, it does strike me that, you know, there is a huge amount of responsibility on the coach to be, to be very, very aware and very, very flexible um, with what they're observing from, from their, their athletes. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. There's like the, the athlete's attitude, you know, their personality, um, what they're what they usually behave like, um, how they're kind of responding on the training to the day. It, it doesn't strike me as something that's that's easy at all. So I, I don't envy the task that you have ahead of you. But um, yeah, I think like if, if if you get it, like I will gladly um, put in a vote for your Nobel Prize um, if I if I get a vote. I appreciate that. Please, please keep the recording for that very reason. But Will do. again, this, this is the problem that you have is that, th so there are various scales and questionnaires that have been used in the overreach and overtraining research. So for example, you've got profile of mood state, which I think most people are fairly familiar with, but it can be relatively time consuming to complete. But again, you, it's the athlete's personality and their interpretation of how beat up they feel that commands the answers they put into that questionnaire. And I know that there's some work being done at University of Technology of Sydney at the moment around the majority of these questionnaires are not even validated. Wow. So your interpretation of the word stress is different to my interpretation of the word stress. Therefore, if that word appears in a question, do you feel stressed? Is that me and you could answer that question differently? Which then questions the validation of some of the scales. So the language used is a language that we understand but not necessarily the athletes. So to validate the questionnaires better, does there need to be more simplistic language used that's in line with their own understanding, for example. Another scale that's used very commonly in the overtraining research is the Rescue 76. And you've got a questionnaire then that you've got 76 items on. You've got an athlete walk through the door and it's kind of like, fill out that questionnaire, I'll see you in an hour. That in itself becomes problematic because as a coach, you don't always have that time. So there, there are things that exist out there but again, it kind of comes back to when we were out there and we were actually asking coaches the questions, the coaches are like, I've got that immeasurable thing that you can't quantify. And that's coach intuition. That's the ability to kind of know 
whether my athlete has gone too far or not far enough based on things like I say, like how the bar's moving, their body language, their answers to the questions, knowing that athlete. So, you know, up in the gym up at Southbourne where we are, when we go in and we observe the athletes training, um, some of them you can turn your back and you turn around again and they're doing a one RM and you're like, what are you doing? Like, you just need to calm down. You're not going max today. Whereas you've got others and you're like, I want you to just lift heavy for three reps and they go, I am feeling tired today, you know? So you've got to take in lots of different factors. Again, it, it comes down to this triangulation effect of you can't just go in the literature, it says I should do this because in reality, in the trenches, that's not how things work. But if you just take the stuff that's going out in the trenches and dismiss the science, then that becomes problematic as well. So the two kind of have to meet in the middle around, again, this term that I really dislike, but this evidence-based practice approach. And actually, that's wrong. I don't dislike the term evidence-based practice. I dislike what that term now has become, I think, would be more interesting. No, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, I, uh, I feel it's, a, it's almost a a cringy word at the moment just, just because of the, the way it's, it's been interpreted, um, at least in, in, let's say, the fitness nutrition sphere. Of, of yeah, I, again, I, I kind of don't want to be like, you know, I'm on my high horse, I have that, that pleasure of being in an academic setting, but I just kind of think, like, I, I, I do not understand science. I don't, there are very few people that actually understand the intricacies of science. I, I understand how to read a research paper, but that's taken me years and years and years. And I think just because you do one module as part of a nutrition course or you put the term evidence-based practice at the end of a post, that does not mean that you understand the evidence to be able to apply that to practice. And I think evidence-based practice is certainly something I follow or at least try to follow in terms of making my research outcome-based. But it's a tough job. It really is. Um, absolutely, there's there's nothing easy to it. Like just just trying to stay on top of literature is a uh, is a, a challenge in and of itself. You know? Honestly, like I I love reading science. I love learning new things. That's what I live for. I'm like thirsty for knowledge. Like, I'm not going to turn my phone around now, but my my board here has just got. So I have a list of studies that are like I need to read these ASAP, and then I have another list which is like if I get time, I might read it. But they're like collecting dust because every time I read a new one, three new come out and I'm like, right, I need to shift them to the top of the list. And like even this morning, a, a colleague of mine sent me one on overreaching in endurance training. And I'm like, I need to read this. I'm really not interested in endurance training, but it comes under the sphere of overreaching. So I kind of got to get my head in it and I'm reading through it. And I'm just like, I hate runners, I hate <laughs> athletes, long distance swimmers. I was like, they're just weak as piss. Like, I just want to read strength stuff. But I like, well, you know. So, yeah, sometimes you have to read stuff that you don't want to read in order to get a greater understanding. And sometimes that means going down this little bit of a rabbit hole of a little bit like the analogy of YouTube. You know, like you get on YouTube and you want to listen to a music video and then like four hours later you're looking at like videos of cats rapping or something. And you're like, how, like, how did I get there? And like research is a little bit like that. You start to read one study, you come across it and you're like, that finding is really cool. Where did they get that from? So you start to pick up some of the breadcrumb trail of the, the literature. And then four hours later, you're just like, yeah, I'm still looking at cats rapping because I got bored after two hours. And I was like, sack it off. I'm on YouTube now. And then you come out the next day, like, shit, man, I've got to get back to this study and read it. So, yeah, um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but literature basically is hard to keep up with, but it's fun as well. Science equals cats rapping. <laughs> 
Right, yeah, and like if you ever get chance, look at some of the rat studies, some of the resistance training literature that uses rats. Some of the videos are on YouTube. Like if you've not seen a rat bench press or leg or leg press to open a trap door to get a tree, you are not evidence based. Like you need to watch that stuff because it just opens your eyes to actual science of rats bench pressing. That is some cooking off there. You know, everybody who is listening to this or who has made it this far is literally going to be going straight onto YouTube to find those videos now just to oh, see man, a rat. Yeah. No, no one's listening to us now. We can sell, we'll talk about whatever you want. Everyone's watching rats. Some guy, <laughs> some guy that's done a video on YouTube has just gone, why are my views like quadrupled on this weird <laughs> rat training video? But, but yeah, just stuff like that fascinates me. It's like if you really read into the methodology of some papers, you just kind of like wow, like, that's really cool, or that's bizarre, or, you know, like, I, I came across, I don't know why we're talking about rat studies so much, but I came across one where they were doing jumps, but in order for the rats to jump and land, they were doing it in a pool of water, and I was like, there are rats jumping in a pool of water and then back out, I was like, I need to get in touch with the author, and just said, did you video this? Like, I need to see this stuff, that's cool, <laughs> humans are boring, you know? Rat, rat research is where it is, so okay, I'm, uh, I want to see if I can uh, switch my uh, my ethics procedure over to uh, over to rats instead. Um, one one thing, just to kind of get get us back to to overtraining, is you did mention other stressors that can contribute to that. Let's say you said that that cumulative stress that can kind of lead to overtraining. You mentioned like family stress. You mentioned jobs and stuff like that. Um, I'm just wondering what other factors can kind of put somebody at risk of, of overtraining or non-functional overtraining? Well, it, it's anything. The body can't differentiate between different types of stresses. Um, so it, it comes under like an allostatic model of the summation of all the stresses, um, which is one of the reasons why the general adaptation syndrome, when you transfer that to sporting populations, it doesn't occur seamlessly because it doesn't look at the sum of all factors. So whether that stress comes from training or whether it comes from work or emotional or psychological cognitive stress, you know, it, it all has the same output. And a, a long time back, um, myself and my, my very good friend, David Nolan, over at Synapse or Synapse Performance, we, we, we kind of created uh, an, an infographic, I guess, which is like a battery. And that ba battery has your load tolerance in there. When you've got a full battery, you can tolerate more load. If you've then got stress from uh, work, you take a little bit of the energy out of the battery, whatever's left remains there, that's your tolerance to training stress. Then you've got, you know, I hate my kids, I hate my wife, get rid of that. You've got, I don't, I'm just giving an example. I, I love them both dearly, I really do. I'm not sure if you're listening. But, um, and then you've got less potential for training. So then your tolerance goes down. So it goes down, it goes down, it goes down, and it goes down. And this is one of the reasons why when you get these hyper-stressed hyper people is that sometimes it's not the right decision to add on a ton of training um, you know, oh, just go and do high-intensity spinning. And it's kind of, mm, is that the right approach for someone that's already hyper-stressed? Um, I think couple that with, and again, coming back to the tangent of overtraining, is you've got this kind of low tolerance as a, as a risk factor. If you train repeatedly to failure, that seems to be a risk factor for non-functional overreaching. Tentatively within the literature, you've got um, chronic low energy availability, so overtraining shows a lot of crossover to the relative energy deficiency in sport model. 
which is something that actually we're, um, I'm working on with a researcher in Brazil at the moment, kind of looking at um, some of the similarities between two models. Um, you've got uh, rapid uh, rapid weight loss, which seems to be evident within um, weightlifting and sports where you need to cut weight. So rapid weight loss while maintaining excessively high training volumes, um, low carbohydrate diets, and that's pretty much it really in terms of risk factors. But again, nothing where you can say in isolation that will put you into a non-functional overreaching state. Yeah, so it's, you, you're just kind of thinking about like these things can potentially contribute um, uh, to what's happening. And that kind of brings me to what I wanted to ask is if, if and then this is, a, this is a big if, if you were able to get um, ethical approval for such a study, like if you wanted to really hammer somebody, if you wanted to reduce... Um, non-functional overreaching inside. How would you go about it? So firstly, I wouldn't put the word overtraining in the ethical um, submission. So as, as exactly, if you were going to be really cruel, you would call it a excessive acute training stimulus from resistance training or an exercise-induced muscle damage stimulus or something like that. So as soon as you put the word overtraining in there, that has ethical concerns because what you're saying is, I'm purposely going to debilitate an athlete, but there's no benefit to that athlete when they come out the other side. So you're saying, I may ruin your career in the, in the name of science. I may not. Would you want to do it anyway? And most athletes would kind of go, no, that's not for me. And their coaches would go, even if they if an athlete went, yeah, I'll do that. The coach would just go, no, you're not doing that because you're out for the season and you've got a high reoccurrence rate. So no, that's not going to happen. Um, I think that, oh, and one more risk factor as well is um, a big increase in muscle damage over a period of time. So if you look at some of like the volume studies, I don't want to go into that debate because to be honest, I find it quite boring, the volume stuff. But if you look at the effects of volume on performance and not um, excessive volume on marks of hypertrophy, you're hitting someone excessively, so high frequency, high volume, you occur and you accumulate a lot of muscle damage. Muscle damage has this negative feedback loop where it triggers um, um, proteolic enzymes called calpanes. The negative feedback loop then is to um, is to decrease central nervous system stimulation. So it's essentially like a protective mechanism to stop you generating sufficient force to contribute to more muscle damage. So that means you then get less explosive. So we could use that as a point to say, right, that athlete now needs some recovery time. If we keep layering on and layering on and layering on, eventually we'll see maximum strength start to decline as well. So I think if I were going to purposely aim to overtrain someone, it would be high volume, lots of muscle damage in activity, so lots of slow controlled eccentrics um, to failure, and I would starve them as well so that they've got low-carb diet, low energy availability. They'll be going, Lee, just feed me. I'll be going, shut up, man, just get three more sets done. And then we're like, I've done them three more sets. Can I eat? I'd just be like, no. Like, you are now not going to eat for the rest of the day. And then come back tomorrow, we'll do the same training session. And I'll just repeat that cycle until they just went, you've broken me. And then I'd be like, okay, now imagine you're in the military. You've now got to go and do another five days of that. That's something that really does interest me is we have athletes who we get that luxury saying, we need to deload you, we need to taper you, we need to tweak it for performance. But then you've got dudes out in the field they're kind of like not eating for three days the 20 mile tab away from a safe zone and they're like i kind of need to get there or i'm gonna die that's something else all of a sudden it's kind of like 
wow, maybe that's where we need to look at the overtraining literature is in armed forces, where inherently there is that low energy availability and chronic training volumes. And it's, it is something that I'm tentatively looking at um, with a university and a different university in Australia at the moment, is just looking at some of the research around the military to see if we can tweak some of their training. Um, a semi-relevant point is that um, there was some... Um, some data where they looked at the um, training modality and methodology of putting soldiers on a camp, and it was something like it was costing a quarter of a million to get them through camp. Um, if you reduce unnecessary amounts of fatigue, it comes down to something like 160,000. So from even if you take out the fact that it's a person, if you look at it from a very cynical monetary perspective, armed forces can save money by avoiding overtraining during the training camp in soldiers. And that's one way of looking at it. The counter-argument to that is, in a sense, that you kind of not need to train them to break them to see who can deal with that when they go out in the field. That, to me, is like this internal argument. And having never done anything in the armed forces other than researching, I kind of go, it's not my area, but I still think it's an inquisitive area for investigation. I think that's absolutely fascinating because it's not something that, like, if we're in, you know, talking about the nutrition or, or sports field, we, we don't think about that. We, we never think armed forces. And, and you made a really good point there. Like, they can probably save money by not, um, by not inducing so much fatigue. But then, yeah, you've got the counter argument. It's like you want to weed out the ones who can't handle, you know, whatever you throw at them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what, another thing that, that kind of came to mind is that when you were talking about like that protocol to, to induce um, uh, non-functional overreaching, you were talking about like a lot of volume, uh, a lot of training to failure, um, people being in a, uh, a caloric deficit. Um, realistically, you know, you're potentially talking about you know populations like bodybuilders that are on prep or powerlifters that are you know doing a weight cut going into competition. So it's something that's that's it's genuinely, you know, applicable. Like there, there are situations when this can be, you know, can happen more frequently. Do we have any data on on that within within those populations, or is it still all very much in the important? No, I mean, obviously, like Mike's doing a lot of really cool stuff with the MRV, um, which I've, I've chatted to Mike about in the past. I really like that idea around the ceiling level of tolerable volume, um, and anything past that has a has a negative consequence. Um, I, I would love in the long term to test some of that stuff. And, you know, I, I have um, tentatively kind of suggested that some biopsies would be really useful for some of my research. As you can imagine, it's specialist medical staff, it's cost, it's time, it's getting people recruited and go, you know, literally I'm going to put a fat needle into your quad, twist it like a corkscrew and then pull out the string of your muscle. And then people go, no, um, I'm not going to do that. But if I could get some of that stringy muscle and then start to say, right, well, let me add on lots of training volume, lots of training to failure, the, you know, if there's a caloric deficit, then, then fair enough, and kind of start to look at some of the signaling mechanisms that, you know, either increase MPS or, or decrease it. And th there has been, again, it comes back to really cool rat studies, and th there was one in particular where they looked at some of the atrogen markers, so things like Merfon, MathBX, and they, they trained these rats so hard. I think that actually was the water jumping one that they started to get not just a decrease in NPS, but an increase in these atrogen markers. And I look at that, I'm kind of like, that would be cool to do in human participants. I just kind of think, again, you talk about like evidences, ethics, recruitment would be an issue. I do think 
like being from Sheffield, which is like mega in terms of bodybuilding culture, powerlifting culture, strongman culture. If I put a recruitment poster up on some of the gym walls saying, I will just break you. Like I will train you until you cry for your mum. Like I would get bodybuilders going, yes, <laughs> let's do it. You know, like that would be cool. So maybe recruitment's not the issue. I think it's just then getting stuff through ethics. But then also you've got this whole argument around maybe they need to be natty bodybuilders in order to get a good starting point. Or then do we look at the difference between natty and geared athletes and look at the tolerance of volume, which everyone has this, will have a trainable and genetic ceiling of tolerance to volume. And maybe the only way to get above that would be to smash them with a load of gear. Um, which again has ethical concerns and you know I'm, I'm certainly not putting that one into ethics um, but in, in reality that's going to really change the curve of tolerable volume um, which could skew the, the kind of data so as a scientist I'm kind of like that's too much of an extraneous variable um, so it would be cool to look at bodybuilders um, but there might be some of the underlining things that I can't control there Wow um... It's definitely a very, very interesting area to, to, to look at. Um, we, we, we could talk about this forever because I, like, I, I'm genuinely fascinated with this now. And I'm, I, I actually am fascinated with your tangents as well. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, very, like, I'm very aware of your time and you've been more than generous with it already. But one thing, just before we finish up, I wanted to ask you specifically about your PhD right now. What kind of experiments are you planning on running with the PhD, um, you know, to, in, in this particular level of final research? Um, so because mine's a relatively novel and contemporary area, mine's by publication, um, so uh, there'll be a large thesis at the end of it, but as I go along, if there's something that we find either in the experiments or in reviews, then they go straight to publication. So as it stands, we've got one uh, review, which is a specific type of re review called Scoping Review, and that's in review, a journal now, so that should get published anytime soon. We've got the international cross-sectional data, which is the one that looks at athletes' perceptions of overreaching and overtraining. I've got one that's just coming towards the end of data collection now, which is the um, epistemological, ontological kind of like interpretation of what the coach's perceptions of overreaching and overtraining are. That's that triangulation, athlete-coach literature. And then going forwards, we've just got this last study in ethics at the moment now, which is a lot of sets to failure with a big eccentric component um, to purposely invoke exercise-induced muscle damage in the name of science, so it will be sore for a few days, but it's still cast as an acute stimulus, it's only once, um, and then map the time cost to recovery for lots of different variables. So perceptual variables like um, perceived muscle soreness, mood, vigor, all that kind of stuff, but then more importantly, um, their ability to generate isometric peak force, or like isometric mid-thigh pull, and how their time cost to recovery in that type of activity might be different to explosive activities like counter movement jump or squat jump or things like that. So we're looking at lots of different variables, and that's just me kind of like prodding a little bit to kind of go, is any of this worth investigating, or do we completely change tight? So um, it's been a bumpy ride. It's been a kind of a cool ride so far. I've still got plenty of time to go. Um, hopefully there'll be a lot more studies. I've already mentioned the one, the, the Red and OTS review paper, the military paper, which are not part of the PhD, but run parallel to it. Um, and lots of other different cool kinds of things, which um, 
some have burst over, some I'm in the, you know, the forbidden et al space, which no one gives a shit about you when you're in et al. Um, but we'll see how it goes. It, like, Lee, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Eric, so you're going to be recruiting soon for that, um, that uh, sets of failure study, are you? Yeah, if you're 18 to 25 years old, can leg press more than double body weight uh, and are trained. So basically you've lifted weights for two years or more. Um, drop your details and I will try and break you. There you go. Uh, if you want to get broken by Lee Bell, um, just drop him a DM. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound right, that does it. <laughs> you said it first. You said it first. <laughs> uh, Lee, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I've, I've loved this conversation. Um, and I just want to wish you the absolute best with your PhD and all of the research that you're doing at the moment because you're contributing to a field that we need more information in. And it'll be fascinating to see um, what you come up with at the end of it. Um, uh, where can people find you if they, if they want to, to kind of follow what you're doing? Um, so... On Instagram and Twitter, it's Lee3ELL. Um, I, I co-own a business called TRA Performance Education with Dr. Paul Rimmer, a colleague of mine from the Bell Rimmer study. Um, <laughs> if you missed the beginning of that, I apologize, but just go back and listen again. Um, or you can get me at lee.bell at shu.ac.uk. That's my academic email for more academic discussions. Fantastic. Uh, Lee, again, thank you so much for uh, all your time tonight. Uh, thanks for your expertise. Thank you for the tangents. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get here um, talking about maybe some of your results in the future. Yeah, sure. Thank you, mate. And cheers for not asking me questions about people in the industry that I'm not a fan of. Absolutely. clear of those questions. <laughs> all right. Take care. Have a great night. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.